Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion, so slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. All right, whoop-de-doo, it's that Percussion Podcast. It's 2.47. We're recording on August 9th, but you're probably listening on July 3rd. So, hey there, everybody. I'm Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual, we've got some regulars. We've got Carly Vigna. Hey, Casey. How you doing, Carly? Yeah, pretty good. Cool. Ben Charles is here. Hey, Casey. You said that they'd be listening on July 3rd, which was a month ago. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, so what's next month? September 3rd? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe. Yeah, thanks. Good it's written right there in front of me, July 3rd. So it's only kind of my fault because I wrote July 3rd, but I followed the directions. <laughs> Hey, what's up with those baby Pop-Tarts? How'd you make Pop-Tarts? From scratch or what? Oh, yes. It's a big involved process. I made apple butter for the filling. I made the dough. I rolled it out. I sealed them up. I made the frosting. But I had just enough dough for one little extra baby one. You can see that on <laughs> Facebook. It's a little, called it the robin size Pop-Tarts. I appreciate that. I saw that. Is it, <laughs> how is it the little one? So every time I make something smaller, it ends up twice as burnt as all the others. And you just look, <laughs> it literally looked like a size down version, like cooked just the same as the larger ones. It's very it's impressive. Just that good. Yeah, nice work. And Ksenia Kamyanovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Casey. I don't cook, so don't ask me anything. Okay. 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 Cool. Cool. I don't cook a lot. I, I'm not, and I'm not good at it. I like cooking, but yeah, I should take lessons from Ben. Yep. Yeah. Well, hey, before we introduce our buddy Brian, I want to tell you all what happened today in music history, and it's an easy one. It's just a birthday on. Oh, I wonder if I looked up July third. Oh, yeah. Huh. Maybe it's July third. <laughs> I don't know. That's whatever fact you got, man. <laughs> check. I'll We're here check for it. it out. Let's see. Yeah, that could be that could be the case. But in in either either case, let's talk about <laughs> Ruth Crawford Seeger's birthday. Uh, she was born in 1901. She's the first female percussion percussionist. Sorry, the first female composer to <laughs> a Guggenheim Fellowship, which means she got to travel to Europe and study and compose. And she uh, let's see. Oh, thank you. Just looked it up. July third. Whatever. It's too much. Too much going on. We're gonna celebrate her anyway. And uh, anyway, so yeah, she's first female Guggenheim recipient. Goes to Europe. Gets to see, uh, meet, and study Berg, Bartok, Mio, and I guess the a big motivating factor for her as a composer was traveling to Europe and discovering that so many European composers. The perception was that. American composers were really second class and that, okay, there's a lot of neat stuff going on in America, but uh, it's, it's nothing like what's going on in Europe. What's up with that, Ksenia? Why are you all like that? Because we're snobs. I guess. Um, yeah, we're, we're total snobs. I think that, well, I'm not going to say it, but there's a little bit of that opinion still today, I feel like, especially in some elitist environments like 
really? clients in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Sure. They're sure. totally up. But wait, actually, I have a, a, a saving uh, point. Uh -huh. um, I looked up Ruth as well, but I couldn't connect what date you found her related to. So I, I saw that it off. Yeah, by two months. Yeah. But Marion Bauer, who was um, there, was some I don't know. There's some evidence or, or suspicion that the two of them might have been in a relationship. Um, she huh. died on uh, August 9th. So boom, you're correct. There's something related to Ruth. Oh, good. the day. There's evidence they were in a relationship? There's some suspicion, yeah, that the two of them were um, in a relationship, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Usually I can find some cool scandal or something to, to report, but I, yeah, as far as I could tell, Ruth was squeaky clean and a, a good family woman with four kids, and um, but that's that's pretty awesome. That makes this way more interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm investigative journalism there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, listen, recommended listening is probably her most famous piece, her string quartet, 1931. She is a modernist, okay, whatever that means. I hate that term because it's just like a catch-all term that doesn't really uh, <laughs> um, mean anything very specific from what I've learned and what I can tell. But um, I decided to dig a little deeper and figure out, no, 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 what is, what is the deal with Ruth Crawford Seeger? Like, what makes her distinctive? And her, along with her husband, Charles Seeger... Henry Cowell and uh, especially Carl Ruggles followed a technique called dissonant counterpoint, which on the surface and to your ear, it may sort of seem like, OK, it's definitely like a descendant of the Schoenberg 12 tone system, but it's, it's really not. It, it's, it's quite a bit more free. In, in how it works. And uh, yeah, if you really want to learn about this, you want to study Carl Ruggles. But dissonant counterpoint basically has a lot of the same rules as uh, traditional counterpoint, like harmony, uh, harmonic counterpoint, except that uh, dissonance is the norm and harmony and consonance is like the, 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 the thing that needs to be resolved. So that's the place of rest. Yeah, Ben. Casey, I was going to ask, this might be totally like way off, but I know Paul Lansky had some sort of system in his early days that was related to 12-tone technique. And that from what I understand, it was basically 12-tone technique, but with a very intentional tonal center. Does, does this Ruggles technique sound anything like that, or is it just totally different? Um, hmm, with an intentional tonal center, I don't know if it's quite like that or not. Let me let me actually give you two little examples from Ruth Crawford Seeger, and let's see. Uh, timeout real quick. Start share. So yeah, hopefully this will I don't know shine a light on that a little bit. This is from a little book called Ruth Crawford Seeger's World's Innovation and Tradition in the Twentieth Century Music by Ray Allen and Ellie Hashama. Hisama, uh, something like that. And uh, this chapter is by someone named Joseph Strauss. So he, he, he talks about three ways that Ruth Crawford Seeger did dissonant counterpoint. And the one I have here is called by ostinato. So you can see here she has a little seven pitch cell, right? So this is kind of like traditional um, um, uh, serialism type thing, but it's just, it's a little simpler, seven pitches. And it's, you, just seven need to be played before they can repeat. So you have this ostinato in the bassoon, right? Seven notes long. And the way the entrances are layered, you notice there's always a matching pitch. 
So when this bassoon plays F sharp, the clarinet sounds F sharp, right? Concert F sharp. Uh, likewise, the next entrance is also on pitch two, which is also F sharp, and then pitch four, which is F natural. So those correspond, uh, so on and so forth. So the way she create creates kind of a a loose set of rules is to have one of these ostinatos in one of the parts, label the pitches, and then have the entrances staggered and kind of be loosely tied to the ostinato. It's certainly dissonant, but it's also very, very easy to grasp. So that's one way she does it, and it's called by ostinato. Another one is called by rotation. And this will sound very, I think, Steve Reichian, but similar. You've got, let's see, yes, another seven uh, set of pitches. And sorry if you're not watching on YouTube. I've got some overlays for you to see. So switch over to YouTube if you're interested. And uh, yeah, so she's got this set of pitches, G, A, G sharp, B, C, F, C natural. And all she does is she flips the order, right? So the next measure is going to start on the A instead of the G sharp. All right, so it starts on pitch number two instead of pitch number one and then rotates through, just like you know, clapping music does that same thing. It's this rotational process, which, of course, Steve Reich called phasing, but Ruth Crawford Seeger and the dissonant counterpoint is call rotation. And then moves on to the third note, so on and so forth. So you can see you get this large scale pattern. So inside this one seven note cell, cell you also get the start of every note in the cell per measure, right? And then she goes through a system where she transposes each of them and goes through the process again. So what we just saw is, of course, the, the prime version of it. And then she'll go to the second version and do the same process, transposed all the same intervals, but on the pitch A. So it's, it's another way to get this whole, like, the micro is the same as the macro, right? Like the smallest part of the form is the largest part of the form as well. So yeah, that's two ways that Ruth Crawford Seeger, I think is um, interesting and uh, unique as far as I know. So yeah, that happened uh, today. I just wanted to, to give a quick little footnote to that. One thing that I, uh, my friend, wonderful composer, Zach Browning has talked about before is that composition is really ways of organizing notes and I think that young composers often, uh, and it's probably why I've struggled as a young composer, we think of composition almost like improvisation of like, what are you feeling today and, and putting it down on paper. Uh, and I find it really interesting when someone can come up with a set of rules like this and it actually ends up sounding like something, if that's making sense. Uh, and yeah. not, not related to this, but I just wanted to give one other example of someone that came up with a set of rules. Do you guys know that piece Extremes by Jason Troiting? Yeah. It's like four people surrounding a bass drum with some little accessories. Um, but anyway, I was fascinated when I saw the score for that, that it's all based on city names and the consonants and vowels and the, and the city names have different properties that he uses. And you would never know that if you weren't like looking at a score. But yeah, I think it's so cool when someone can come up with a set of rules like this and, and make a piece out of it. Well, it's, you know, it's great because there's all this freedom in her systems, but yet there's also all this cohesiveness. Yeah. You know, like it, it's it's totally dissonant, but it's also really attainable. Like, listen to that string quartet. It's it's really, you can just tell instantly, like, yeah, this is a, yeah. This is a masterpiece. And it, it reminds me of, like, like, Bartok is another great example. Like, came up with this whole system of stuff with rotational axes and all that, but it also allowed him freedom to express, you know, to compose expressively. Sorry, Ksenia, mm -hmm. I think you 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cassandra, no, you're going to tell us why this is bad American music? Go I'm ahead. Gonna, I'm going to woman's playing this. Uh, no, I was just going to say, you know, Ben, who you would like, perhaps as a composer, I don't know if you heard about this person, Mark Applebaum. I think he yeah. does these things very much. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows Speaking this. Speaking of Mark Applebaum, Carly, you have some Mark Applebaum news? I have Mark Applebaum news. I think this is a, the performance I'll have in the calendar, the farthest ahead of anything. But I'm going to play, I'm going to perform aphasia at PASIC 2021. Whoa, cool. Dude, yeah. There you go. That's awesome. Well, the, the whole new music research um, path of the part of PASIC this year, next year, is going to be really cool because it's percussion and voice. So that's the, the relationship. Oh, that's man, awesome. that's so cool. I need to. Oh, that's great. Well, way to go, Carly. We'll definitely be we'll definitely be be watching and cheering along. Hey, well, our our guest has been chilling out this whole time, and that that intro took a little longer than I meant to. So, um, sorry, Brian. Thanks for thanks for waiting. And you know, Brian Smith is a buddy of mine, and he's been uh, one of the one of the two principal percussionists of the Stanton Music Festival, which is where. I met him, and it's just fantastic playing with him. I think technically he's my boss, but it doesn't, definitely doesn't feel like that. It's just fun, and he'll probably deny that. But, yeah, he's he's a fantastic musician and fantastic percussionist. DMA from Stony Brook. He's got all these cool solo and chamber ensemble projects that we definitely want to hear about. Uh, something he calls the Mad Hatter series projects. Uh, project called Screenplay, Data Play and human plus so dude brian thanks so much for coming today and i know you're going to talk about robots and frogs and that better be cool because dude we've had like evelyn glennie on this podcast like what are you what are you doing <laughs> that's going to be hard to compete with the queen <laughs> but i'll do my best with robot frogs thanks so much for having me it's really great to be here it's a real treat yeah man hey how did you you know i've kind of wondered like how how did you come all the way from new york to little stanton and i mean harrisonburg is kind of the middle of nowhere virginia but stanton like really is literally like you would never you know you would never know like how did you end up at the stanton festival i lived in virginia for seven years while my partner was doing his phd at uva and during that time, I was teaching at uh, two universities. I was teaching at the University of Lynchburg. Actually, at the time, it was called Lynchburg College. It's now uh, the University of Lynchburg. So I was there for, goodness gracious, six or seven years. Uh, started the percussion ensemble there and, and, and taught lots of lessons and taught you know the percussion methods course. And then nearby, uh, there's also Randolph College, where I was teaching theory and ear training. So I did that uh, on top of you know freelancing for gosh six or seven years while we were, while we were there, and then uh, my partner got a job at Colgate University um, outside of Syracuse. So we moved to upstate New York, and then so that's what got me out of um, Virginia. And uh, while I was there, I got uh, to know and I played with Ejen Fang, who's the percussion uh, faculty member at the University of Virginia. We played together many times. And uh, so this was, gosh, 2013 when we were leaving and the Stanton Music Festival was just starting to expand. They were, I think for the first time, we're going to do something where they needed a second percussionist. And so because I had this relationship with Ija and she said, oh, well, contact Brian. It was this piece by Judith Shayton for oboe and two percussionists called Time to Burn. It's actually a fantastic piece. It's really great. I don't think it gets programmed enough but uh so i went out there and i did that and a george crumb piece and i think one other 
And uh, Karsten Schmidt, who's the artistic director for the Stanton Music, Music Festival, said, uh, this is really great having a second percussionist. You should come back next year and we'll do the bar talk and do a lot more things. And that was the beginning of a long-term relationship where we've done a ton of stuff ever since then. Ask him, Ben. Do it. I don't even have to read. <laughs> Ask him. <laughs> So, uh, did you play symphony or the percussion part on Bartok? Oh and how'd you guys solve the crash cymbal thing in the third movement? And what'd you guys do about snare throw-offs? <laughs> and was your other percussionist as good as the lovely Carly Vigna? Um, <laughs> Ejen's pretty badass. So I'll start with the uh, I'll start with the last question uh, first, and the answer is yes. <laughs> just just as lo lovely um, and fantastic. <laughs> Um, uh, this first time, gosh, I think now I've played the Bartok four times, uh, but this first time I played the percussion part. Um, and of the four times I've done it, I've actually done the percussion part three times and the timpani part once. Uh, the timpani part is way harder. Um, I happen to like the percussion part more, but I did the percussion part uh, first. Um, I used the, we used the solution for the crash symbols in the third movement that's in a pretty popular and I think fantastic um, video by some Yale percussionists on YouTube um, in which they use a modified hi-hat uh -huh. um, where they are they are very close uh, closely suspended together so the the crash symbols and you have to have some nice crash symbols so I had a really beautiful set of old crash symbols um, um, gosh Darren Lynn who's a percussionist with the US Marine Band now once played them once um, I was the principal percussionist in this orchestra in upstate New York for a while. Anyways, he was taking care over for me during a leave of absence and um, got to meet him. He played these crash cymbals and um, said, gosh, you don't even have to be good to play these crash cymbals. So I put those crash cymbals on the hi-hat and you know made them really close together so that we could activate the hi-hat by hand. Uh, and it sounded really great. And then uh, for the snare throws, I have to mark, gosh, if I if I reached up in my score up there, I could find all the places where I um, marked in the score, um, th uh, turn snares off, turn snares off, turn snares off. We had, we had a system and it was my first time performing it. I don't think I got it right until the dress rehearsal, but I got it right in the dress rehearsal and in the performance, got all the snare throws right. It's a, it has to be performed like a lot of percussion things like choreography and ballet. I like the hi-hat method. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, Ben. There's your answer. We make sure to thoroughly go about that. I hope you're keeping like a running spreadsheet of all this somewhere because it'd be really disappointing <laughs> if this isn't leading up to anything. I'd really like to know how many times we've asked this oh, yeah. and the, the metrics, the results. I, I just want to, I think I might have said this one time, but I just want to mention to any younger percussionists that like I knew the Bartok was a big piece. Like I'd heard of it. But I actually, I had Evelyn Glennie's recording of it, and it starts so quiet and so slow. And every single time as a younger student, I would put it on, listen to like a minute of it, and be like, this sucks. And I would turn it off. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. And it, to be clear, it does not suck. And you should definitely listen past that first minute, because very quickly after that, it gets very exciting. And it's, it's a staple in our repertoire for a very good reason. And if you ever have a chance to play it with someone as wonderful as Carly or Ejen, please, please, by all means, do I think um, for young people especially, that's one that I know I've said before on this show, like when you're in studio class or you're in percussion lit class, don't put the score up on the screen. Get the score in their hands. Like just make a classroom set, 
you know, 15 copies, whatever, and pass it out so they can really watch it up close and play it a is, good recording. And this piece is, on, is say, all the difference. It is on IMSLP. I don't know if it's legal or not to be up there, but it is there if you wanted to have your class download it. Um, but yeah. I, I, you mentioned Brian's, the, you played Crumb in Stanton as well. Was that the, the um, I'm blank on the name of it. Michael Cosmos? Yeah, yeah. No. Um, what it wasn't a two pianos, two percussion concert. Uh, I we also did. Um, oh gosh, I've done it three times. Um, and I'm conflating the Keiko Abe and the Crumb, which both involve you know children and ancient. Um, <laughs> um right, it's ancient voices, it's ancient voices of children, right? Not, yeah. not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not, not, not yeah, very, or there is no, right. sorry, yeah, yeah. No. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we we, did, we did that together just uh, two summers ago. One summer ago. Oh well, that was that was from night music. That was night music, right? Okay. Yeah, we yep, did yep. we did night night music one. Um, yeah. Um, the the um, gosh, what is it again, Carly? Ancient voices of children. It's ancient voices of children. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's. Embarrassing. Um, you can just edit that out, right? Um, Sorry, Casey thought I the could. next month was July, so. <laughs> so we're good. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, so that was the crumb that we did, Ben. Well, um, speaking of all this percussion, it's really cool, you know, that you ha have such a good relationship because that meant that myself and our buddy Eric Genevin from JMU now get pulled down to play at Stanton all the time and Stanton it takes place at two little churches and they're just so happy to have like tons of percussion crammed in and they deal with all the logistics on the concerts and it's really great they just absolutely love us I feel like uh, most festivals would maybe say like ah we don't have enough space for this much percussion maybe we'll do like a piece but no they'll just like pack on percussion in their concerts and it's just really really great so um, speaking of two pianos, two percussion, I know you were working on a Rite of Spring arrangement and also up and coming Ksenia Komjanovic is working on a Rite of Spring arrangement. So <gasps> arrangements right. awesome. Which so, one should I buy? Great a minds. duel. A duel. Who can sing the Hamilton countdown to the shooting? <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, but I was gonna, I think you said it's yours is two piano, to percussion. Mine is marimba and piano. So I, I suck. I, I lose less equipment, less people, slimmer music. Tell us about well, yours. Well, I mean, I, this is great. I'm I, like, I would have been terrified if it were also two pianos, two percussion, because then it's like, no, <laughs> that. Um, so it's great. You know, there's more difference. Um, so this actually started with the Stanton music festival, um, I did my undergrad at, at CCM and I, and I saw the percussion group uh, during my undergrad, um, the, the percussion trio there, uh, do an arrangement that they did of the Rite of Spring with the piano duo that was there. And it always stuck in my mind. I thought this was, oh, this was so cool. And a couple of years ago, I suggested, why, why don't we do something like this at Stanton uh, to the artistic director? And he said, yeah, cool, but I would just, I'd like to try and do it like Bartok, but you know, so just two pianos and two percussion. And I thought, oh, oh, that's gonna be hard, but good things come from hard challenges. Yeah. So, um, uh, we, uh, where do I start? Uh, I'll do the short story is that the original version was going to be just to take the original published version from 1913, which was just the piano four hands, um, and just 
kind of throw in the orchestral percussion and just kind of annotate some things um, and then throw in some extra color um, and add maybe add some marimba and xylophone here and there just to throw in some a lot of the the harmonic and um, lines um, that are that are missing. Um, we realized very quickly um, that it wasn't going to work. Um, that's insufficient. So. Um, I should also say at this point that I started this project with a um, colleague of mine who I think, Ben and Ksenia, you both know. So this is Peter White. Peter! We <laughs> love Peter. I love Peter. We all love Peter. He's fantastic. So um, he was coming to Stony Brook as I was leaving Stony Brook. And that was right when I was going to start working on this project and was talking about it. He's like, that sounds cool. And I was like, I'm never going to get this done by myself. Do you want to work on this together? So we actually started this in 2018. Uh, we pre we premiered it last summer, two pianos, two percussion. So many cool engineering things we had to come up with to solve some really interesting problems. And uh, we're actually still working on it right now because we're trying to get it published. And the whole history of the Rite of Spring arrangements is like a, a story of many, many additions and many, many errors that are getting corrected. So it's taking us a long time to have a really pristine version. That's awesome. Uh, and what's, wait, okay, so they asked me this last time. What's your favorite movement? Dum, dum, dum. Oh, gosh. Um, it's um, it's the movement um, right right before that, that leads into the sacrificial dance. So oh, what is the name of that movement? I just, I, I'm just editing it for like the 120th time yesterday. Um, Spring rounds. What, no, uh, b before the, the second to last movement? No, it might not be. No, 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 that's just Casey's favorite. <laughs> oh, no, Spring Rounds is great with all the parallel fifths in there. That's that's my my close second is, is Spring I'll look Rounds. It up. But... You guys keep talking, I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Um, there's there's a there's a really chilling there's a really chilling aspect to it. Um, and maybe it's because of the original like Nijinsky choreography, but it, it's it's where the um, victim who's going to dance herself to death gets chosen. And the circle of ancestors is, you know, slowly processing around her, and it's just chilling. It has um, this—I don't know—really arresting quality to it. So right now, that's my favorite. But spring rounds—I mean, I don't know—it's hard to pick. That, that movie is uh, "Ritual Action of the Ancestors." Mm. Ritual Action of the Ancestors—it's amazing. Well, I you guess can I'll always ask, just sing us apart. Mm? I'll ask both Ksenia and Brian, how do you do the bass drum excerpt? How do you do that thing in your arrangement? Uh, for me, that's... The low G or something? Uh, no. Uh, for, for me, it's just uh, on the piano. Uh, no. Um, hello. Um, I just keep it on the piano as the four uh, movement. Uh, the four movement, the four hand uh, part does. Uh -huh. I think it makes most sense because everything else all the all the sort of i, I can't speak english anymore um <laughs> can we skip me <laughs> yeah we can yeah we, we we'll come back to you Ksenia, okay but you, you also probably speak like you probably speak more languages than any of us so that's none fine. of them well no brian there's no there's no excuse for this <laughs> well, okay you, i'll okay. sing so <laughs> yeah that one yeah <laughs> Brian, how Somebody do you fire me? The two percussionists, you can probably just do it, right? You can probably just. Do it. <laughs> well, so so this was one of the really like crazy like 
engineering feats that I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of. Um, the, the other one has to do with crotale trees. Maybe we should talk about crotale trees. I don't know. Um, yeah. but for, but for the bass drum excerpt, um, there, um, I mean, there's also, there's also a big timpani part in there, right? Like, so the main, the main thing is that like, while the bass drum is doing all those triplets, the timpani is doing 16th notes, right? And it has this F sharp C like pedal tone that it's going back and forth. And you've got this tritone thing. And so like that takes care of the two percussionists. Well, how the heck do you throw Tam Tam in there? I don't know. Well, the solution was um, to go back to Bartok, use a hi-hat. So, um, so we used um, a, a hi-hat um, with a really, with a large China symbol on the top symbol. Um, and then on top of the lower symbol, there's a foam pad. And so when you, when you, when you um, roll on the symbol and press down, it mutes very quickly. Okay, sounds great. How do you do that while playing bass drum? Well, trial and error, you use, you use four mallets and you put uh, wooden mallets of some kind. I use, I use like some Rite of Spring, um, um, Tom, uh, some freer mallets, but I just did them backwards on the inside mallets and then marimba mallets on the outside. And I mounted the symbol over the bass drum so that just on the rolls, the digga digga up, that five stroke roll, I brought those mallets onto the cymbal, digga digga up, and then on the downbeat, press the pedal, and then it mutes. So you can have both, oh, both yeah. the bass drum and the tam tam playing together. I feel like, could I have seen you practicing that a few a summer or two ago? I feel like that sounds very familiar. Probably. Yeah, because you, you all were testing stuff out or rehearsing or something. Do you have a recording of your last summer's performance? Uh, we do. Um, I, uh, some things, some things went fantastically well. Uh, some things, this was the first time we did it. Some things like, and we had like, like three rehearsals to put it together and like, it's like, and it was really hard. So some things, you know, were a little raw. Um, I'm putting a trailer together. I'm going to put, uh, put on YouTube. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to that. That's cool. I think it's a huge challenge. Uh, Carly, did you ever take Nancy's marimba arranging class at Boston Conservatory? No, it was she. She was always such an advocate for like changing more stuff, you know. And this summer at the Beta seminar, I worked with several students on their arrangements of other pieces, and it just always seems like, okay, right in the orchestra they have you know ten notes in the chord, and there's so many doublings and so many things. But a lot of times, you actually don't even need all four on marimba, you know. Like, it, it, yeah, scoring is just such a, such a different thing. And I thought Nancy had such a cool, cool perspective on that. Yeah, I have, Casey, I have a question because I've heard so many stories of Nancy's like marimba arranging class. Um, yeah. I guess Casey and Carly, what was like, what was the coolest, hippest, like a marimba thing you heard come out of those? Like, I, I knowing Nancy's students, I could see someone doing like Rite of Spring for solo marimba. I mean, or right. I mean, of course her, you know, she, she was letting us, just experiment, you know, I mean, of course the class was like, Hey, take something of your choosing and let's make an, you know, marimba forehands arrangement or marimba duo arrangement or something like that or solo arrangement, whatever. So I, I nothing that us students ever did st sticks out in my head, but of course there's her, her published arrangements. You know, she's got a Beethoven, she's got a Chopin out there and yeah, it's just really cool to see how, like, no, she doesn't just take note for note as much as possible onto the marimba. I mean, she takes like a lot, a lot of liberty and a lot of careful treatment that I think students especially would have such a fear of doing. It's like, oh, well, how could I possibly leave 
leave out a note Chopin had in there. Um, but that, that note that Chopin <laughs> included might be more just about the piano than about Chopin's music, you know? Uh, so she, she really had that, that sense of freedom. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What do you think, Carly? Yeah. Well, to me, what what is so special about Nancy's approach to the marimba, she knows the, the marimba and its strengths and weaknesses so well that like, you're right. Like she would say like, go ahead and change this or, you know, let's, let's make the marimba shine um, and make right. it work. Yep. Yep. Hey, Carly, well, um, to give, sorry to like keep on like this is like the Ben praises Carly episode, but Carly did some beautiful like Simon and Garfunkel stuff when I was on oh. Miami. I always enjoyed that. Oh, Thanks, cool. Man. <laughs> Pius Chang wrote a bunch of shit while I was there. I remember actually that was my first exposure to Casey. He posts this video of one of Pius's A2s. He's like, hey, Pius, can you write something difficult next time? Oh, I and remember that. People in the comments were like destroying Casey for disrespecting Pius. And they're like, no, I think he, I think they're friends. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Well, yeah, that, that was before that piece was published. And that was how he played it, too. So like there's an introduction on that recording that's missing. Uh, this is Pius's E minor etude, if anyone's wondering. There's a little introduction now, but that did not exist back then. It just started, like, right on the theme. And, yeah, it's just, like, stupid fast and stupid straight. And that's how Pius used to play it, too. But he'll he'll tell you now, like, I just can't play it like that anymore. My hands don't do that anymore. I don't think my hands do that anymore, either. Erico but, could. Erico could. Oh, yeah, well, she'd just do it with one hand. <laughs> yeah yep, no doubt just shred with one hand uh hey before we move on to my little topic i want to take a quick little uh break and let you all listen to something that i i got brian to send me so uh check this out let's see if this sounds decent this is a little project i think called rumble lines uh rumble line right brian uh, it's actually called Rumble Rumbline. Uh, oh, Rumbline, you're right. Okay, so yeah, I just assume. Yeah. I and just I can I, I can explain that later. <laughs> well, here let's let's take a look at it real quick.
Dude, so so I see little motors revving. I see shish kebab skewers, and I see uh, wine corks. I see cork, right? Okay, so tell me that you can move that thing. Like, it looks very movable. You could, like, put it in a hallway, right? Yeah, so uh, there are, I think that setup had um, 20 or so frogs, uh, as we've oh, called them, um, that are are connected to um, some devices and a computer and they're set up in, in a circle and they are on the bank of um, an imaginary pond. So this is a sound installation piece, of, okay. uh, a piece I've done in conjunction with the composer Meg Shadell, who is at Stony Brook, and a percussion colleague of mine, uh, Rob Cosgrove. I don't know if any of you know him. So we worked on this together and... Um, it, the yeah there's a there's a, a bun of a bunch of these little frogs and um the idea is that in the same way that if you are i don't know out and about in in the world or around a pond um you might hear a bunch of bullfrogs and get a sense of what the contours of a pond is but you might not see where the frogs are especially if they're tall grasses or thing, things like this this was based on meg the composer's experience so she wanted to replicate this so there's a there's a, a million of these frogs well 20 in this version and um the idea for this version of the piece is that there's a giant black screen um blocking the view when you come into the gallery so yeah, you could put it in a hallway, but it would it would mess it up uh, huh. the experience a little bit. So there's a big screen, and you have to just listen for a while and try and figure out if you can tell what the arrangement is, like what is the shape of the frogs? Is it like is is it is it heart shaped? Is it circular? By sensing distance um, and listening very carefully, then you go on the other side of the screen and you see what everyone just saw now, which is um, them arranged in a certain place, and there are gaps. Um, so it's a sound art piece that used these frogs, and that was from the what we call the um, the beta release in uh, February. So cool. Well, that makes more sense now that you say a pond. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Ksenia, sorry. I I think that's that's really cool, and uh, it sort of relates to an experience I had when I went to a blind museum in Warsaw. I don't know if any of you have gone to any of those, but basically you enter, and then there's a a vision impaired person who's your guide and you leave all your belongings and you enter rooms that are completely dark. And what was really interesting to me was that the moment that we entered, um, he told us, he said, okay, now you will be using your ears to evaluate space. And my friend who was with me, she grabbed my hand and she was like, you'll be good at this. I mean, I almost smacked my head against every single thing in the room. I could not figure anything out. And I felt, oh, my God, I was like, oh, my God, I use my ears for a living. And I'm really not good at mapping the space. I had no idea how big the room was, where anything was. And they do. They know from how sound bounces back and forward, how their voice sounds in a room, that they can evaluate a room. So I thought that was just so impressive. And I think this is a fantastic uh, musical experience, artistic experience, similar, yeah. It actually reminds me in a way of another project that I think Megan Arns reported on way, way long ago called Gamalatron. Um, and it's basically a bunch of Gamalatron. I reported on that. Oh, Casey did. Okay, yeah. And it's a bunch of like little, you know, instruments that <laughs> have these little, you know, triggers. And it, it sort of makes like Gamelon music. And it's, you know, it's cool because you can spread it out and stand in the middle of it. But it, it, this almost mar reminds me of like Mark Applebaum meets Gamalatron. <laughs> it's like the, the experimental version of it. So, yeah, it's cool stuff. How good are you at it, Brian? Sorry, please. How good, am How good are I you at, at mapping out the, the frogs? 
the truth is I didn't get, I, I wasn't there. I couldn't stay for um, the experience. So like I, I, I flew up to New York. We did this at Stony Brook Uni University back actually back, back in February before the world changed and kind of shut down. Um, and we, I had a couple of these prototypes and we knew what we wanted to do. And so I was there to build the rest of the frogs and then work to, to set up the installation. But, um, it was actually opening the day after I had to come back to Texas, which is where I'm based. And I didn't get the experience of trying, of trying to map. So that's to be determined. I might be, I might, I might run into something as well. Do, do so, update us. So, so you built, um. And like, like, how does this work? I mean, I, I have no idea how this works. You said they're hooked up to a computer. And for those of you who weren't able to see on YouTube, we had all these little module instruments and there's motors triggering them and there's wires strung, strung and spread around the stage. Like, like, how does this work? So all the, all the wires go from the motors to somehow put, get into a computer and, and like, then what happens? Yeah, there's two main devices. One device is called a, it's called a data machine. It's something that I've used in some other projects, the project, the human plus project that you've talked oh. about, a, a piece that I wrote for me in metallic percussion, where it's me playing with some robots. So it, that also uses the data machine. Um, well, that's the company. It's actually called the Automat. So that's one device. And the other is a laptop. And on the laptop is running, um, it's running Max MSP. And so there's okay. a particular Max patch that we ran that, um, has the kind of randomization aspect to it that sends different calls or around around the pond. We're actually working on modifying it so that there are like a distinct set of calls. Like if one of the frogs is like, you know, but up, like the others will repeat them. It's a little too random right now. There's not a sense of call and response, um, but there's a max patch on a computer connected to the data machines. And all of those little frogs are connected by wires to the data machines. It takes MIDI signals. Okay. And so, so the way it actually works is that the max patch that we have generates MIDI signals. It sends the MIDI signals to the automat and then the automat converts, you know, that MIDI signal out to all those motors, and then those motors spin. I, li I like to I like to have it spelled out for our our listeners because I I mean of course I didn't know either, but it sounds so unattainable when you've never. But now I can imagine. Okay, there's this device, you know, so cool. Um, hey, well, I'm I'm gonna do a little uh, topic for us all today, and I'm gonna make you look at this background when I do it, so you're a little distracted. Can anyone name that band? Anybody? one giveaway this guy right here that's the giveaway well i'll, I'll let you contemplate on it so you don't have to listen to me casey talk can, you, about can this. you lean to the side so we can see yeah. who's in the middle for a second okay that's no help it's no help well you guys are gonna have to think about it is it new kids on the block yeah way to go carly that's what i was thinking <laughs> but i didn't know <laughs> i was thinking it's not backstreet boys oh my it's god not way <laughs> Wait to go minute. carly that's right. All right. Well, you know, I bumped into something. I'm talking to my buddy, uh, uh, Brian and I's buddy, Eric Genevin, and we were just talking about, like, the pace at which people release stuff and the pace how some composers are really slow and it seems like they take a really long time. Other people seem to release quickly. And, of course, we've talked on the show a lot about how the pressures of social media, you're looking all the time. It seems like everyone is cranking out all this stuff all the time. And of course, we know that's not true. It's just your, you know, your newsfeed shows everything everyone is doing. But it, uh, it, it, it kind of led me into something by an, an author and an economist named David Gallinson. And he has a book called Old Masters and Young Geniuses. And if you want to YouTube that, you can see a nice little lecture. There's a short one and then there's a very long one. But uh, yeah, or of course, there, there's the book, which 
coincidentally, Brian picked up. But anyway, this this author, David, describes what he kind of says is like a much needed reckoning in our understanding between what he calls just experience, like we consider some people to be more experienced than others, and innovation. So, and that there's this kind of widespread assumption that innovation and creativity really belong to young people. And that was something else our, our colleague Eric was, was explaining. He was saying like, it seems like it's always young people winning these prizes. And if you haven't won such and such prize by a certain time, you kind of can just count on it not happening. So yeah, even the word genius, uh, David Gallinson goes on to explain, it comes from the Greek word birth. Uh, that's part of the word genius. And it's been used to describe artists who make sudden dramatic creations or discoveries at a very young age. Those are who we consider geniuses. So anyway, research shows that uh, quick, radical innovations in art have no doubt had a huge impact on things to come, right? Andy Warhol, Damien Hirst, T.S. Eliot, Hemingway. These have huge, huge influence on what what comes later. Uh, yeah, that's what he said, Ksenia. He said Damien Hirst. It's not me, it's him. Sorry. Awful, awful, awful. Well, I, agree. I agree. We'll I agree. I, I, I think Damien Hirst totally blows, and I don't think they'll will last <laughs> myself. <laughs> but it has to do with how he measures the success, and that's why this is a little tricky. So a, a lot of how he measures how how significant these things are. And this is why his book is so focused on art is because auction prices are one of the things. And he, he says specifically, he knows that doesn't mean anything to artists. Like artists could care less how much something went up for auction or how much public appeal there is, so on, et cetera. So he definitely leaves room for us to like still pay attention to this, I think very cleverly. But um, so yeah, we consider in general, these young innovators who have these like, huge drastically changing things that like drop giant bombs on the scene to like be the creative geniuses but he says there's also this other life cycle of creativity uh those who arrive at their outcomes slowly and later in life Cezanne, Dovskievsky, Robert Frost, Francis Bacon, Rembrandt does that piss you off Ksenia is that cool Tim it's not me it's him <laughs> those are cool those are cool those are okay those are cooler, actually, I think. But however, oh, yeah, yeah, so there's already kind of two sides going here. So th those are who he calls experimentalists. And this is a little confusing, I think, in musical terms, because I think when we talk about people experimenting, we are talking about these quick, young creation uh, ideas like John Cage 433. You know, it's like, boom, that's like a quick conceptual idea. And we often call that an experiment. But that's not what he calls experimentalists or um, old masters. So old masters or experimentalists or the people who immerse themselves in an idea and tinker with it for years and years and years, or as conceptual innovators, I'll, par I'll just paraphrase him because I'm sure it'll be well way better explained that way. He says their goal is to express an idea or an emotion. They plan their work carefully in advance and they can execute it systematically and decisively. Their innovations appear suddenly and the new idea produces a result very different, not only from other artists, but also from work of their previous work, which I think we can see in a lot of uh, musicians. Uh, quoting more, the experimentalists, they work by trial and error. Their goal is very different. It's to record their perceptions. They're uncertain how to do this, so they proceed cautiously and incrementally. Their innovations consequently appear great 
gradually and over long periods. They're not declared in a single work, but appear piecemeal in a large body of work. Their uncertainty of their goals means they're usually unsure of their progress, and even the great experimental innovators typically express frustration at their inability to express very elusive goals. So he says, uh, Paul Cezanne, famous artist, made scores and scores of paintings of his beloved mountainside, uh, um, Mont Saint-Victorie, and spent the last three decades of his life making gradual treatments to arrive at the fine, final painting that that would be, and subsequently inspired like every generation of artists uh, for the next period in art. Uh, later in his life, Cezanne wrote to a friend, I've made some progress, but why so late and with such great difficulty? Is art really a priesthood that demands the pure in heart who must belong to it entirely. Uh, so I, I have a little more, but please, I think you guys have stuff to say. So Carly, I think. So one question was kind of running through my head as I was listening to all this is, is one method better than the other? Um, and which would you rather be in? Maybe we're all kind of listening to this and, and thinking like, oh, I identify with this or I identify with this side. What do you guys think? Which, which one's better? It sounds like to the individual artist, the the quick, quick, easy money Andy Warhol is uh, the nicer one. But I think his point is that you need both. And he goes on to explain that after Cezanne, just a year after Cezanne's death, Picasso painted a very famous uh, painting of the ladies. I forget what that's called, and I put my notes away. Um, but uh, the, the pink cubist ladies, and that's like the birth of cubism. So I guess the research suggests that, I mean, you need the old experimentalists, the people who gradually um, make their work in order to inspire the young conceptualists. So I think as an individual, yeah, you could definitely ask. I mean, it sounds like being the conceptualist is the easier and more fun one to be. Um, whereas, I mean, Cezanne talked about these struggles, you know, other artists talk about this being like a long haul and a really difficult thing to do. However, he, I think he's saying for art, you definitely need both. Yeah, Ben. I was just going to add a quick quote like this. This whole discussion reminds me there's a famous quote from Pablo Casals, and uh, he, he practiced four and five hours a day every day, even very late in his life. And someone asked him once, why, why do you still practice so much? And he said, because I think I am making progress. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's just the 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 old masters that that are still that invested. It's so it's so refreshing to hear that, I think. That's cool. Brian, what can what can you add to this? I mean, you you actually own the book. You didn't just watch a YouTube video like I did, so you probably actually know what the heck's going on. Um, I, I actually I mean, I do I, I do I know what's going on? No, that's that's like that's too much to ask. Like what is life? I don't know. But I did I did I did read uh, I've gotten like through a lot of the book. Uh, it's actually been on my list for a while. Um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a, a piece called Late Bloomers, I think from like 2008 or so, based on his experience of reading this book. And so I knew of it and it's kind of been on my list. And then when you had mentioned, oh, we're going to talk about this, I thought, oh, let's uh, let's just let's read the book. So um, <laughs> uh, I so I, I read part read part of the book. And um, I guess what I, there's, I had lots of thoughts. I always have lots of thoughts. But one one particular thought I had about music was that in his description of experimentalists versus conceptualists, so much of what he says about experimentalists applies to the practice of improvisation. So for anyone who has been in an improvisation group, um, this experience of what he calls seeking, which is what experimentalists do, um, is 
is really true to my experience of being in an improvisation group where oftentimes for the experimentalists, it's like it's really not even the end product that matters. Yeah, you can record um, um, an improvisation, but really it's the act of imp improvising itself and and responding to your your counterparts. Uh, he talks about experimentalists doing this too. They're they're you know he uses painting. They're painting and then they're responding to what they're seeing on the canvas. So I I saw a lot of parallels between the act of um, experimentalism and improvisation. Hey, <laughs> Good job. Good job. You, you survived this chat. Survived Casey's test. <laughs> so the main question is, is Justin Timberlake currently, Casey sitting on his lap as much as we can see, um, oh, yeah. is he an experimentalist or a conceptualist? Um, right. So if you're listening, I have the, I have NSYNC as my background because I'm, I'm taking this background to a new level. Um, I don't know what they would consider. He, he does talk about some pop musicians. Like I know he does a chunk on Bob Dylan. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know what, I don't know what they would think. I, I'm guessing they would say more experimentalist because NSYNC is more in the vein of like boy bands. Like, they were just another boy band. They didn't really do anything all that different. They just continued refinement on um, something else. I, I think w one little thing I would add, like, I think Rembrandt, although it's easy to find other other um, artists that have done portraits like that, it's there's something so special about Rembrandt. Like, I don't think Rembrandt will, like, like I, I think Warhol will be forgotten, <laughs> like, like long before Rembrandt, you know, like Rembrandt's really, really special. Like even years ago, only Ben will remember this. I poured, I reported on that the next Rembrandt project, where a bunch of scientists got together. They did all the measurements and computer calculations to produce another Rembrandt, like another Rembrandt painting, and it's really great. I mean, it's really, really convincing. But the, it was missing something like it was missing this 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 particular like subtle subtle emotion that you can't put your finger on um it, because yeah rembrandt had to paint his subjects like these noble people or these rich people he had to paint them as noble and uh you know display their their wealth but also display like the burden they bear for the people they rule over and the hard decisions they have to make. So there's just, there's just like always this tint of sadness in every face. And it's really special. And, you know, I, I don't know how many other next Rembrandts that algorithm produced, but the one I saw, the one they, they showcase, it, it, it definitely didn't have that, that special look. Sorry, I steamrolled somebody, did I, Carly? You're just assuming you didn't even, didn't even read the chat. <laughs> no, I did I did <laughs> <laughs> well, I when I was thinking about all of this and thinking about um, the conceptual versus experimental process, I, all I thought of was this quote from Martha Graham. You all might be familiar with this. It's like a, a real inspirational one. Uh, and I'll share part of it with you, but it's kind of about like keeping the, the she says, keep the channel open. Um, it's not your, your job to judge your own work, you know, to say like it's good or compared to other people. And what she says, this is the end of, there's a there's a longer quote, and if you search Martha Graham quote, you're going to come up with this one, I think. But she says, no artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction, whatever, at any time. There is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. And 
this is where I think actually it's, you know, conceptual, you might get more um, like instant gratification, like, oh, I had this great achievement. But there's something about like the process of I always want to try to make this a little bit better and kind of sitting and living with something for a long time. That's what I thought of. Um, in that uh, huge podcast episode that you sent to us, Casey, which basically said everything in the first five minutes, but I listened through all, the full hour because I'm a good person. Uh, okay. Towards the end, thank you. Um, a little bit of morality points. Uh, towards the end, they mentioned something that was interesting, and that's that's what occurred to me also um, is that the conceptualists actually, even though we might think that that's cooler because you get a lot of money when you're 26 because you've innovated your field or something, you actually never get to create or they say the public sees you in a way that they compare all your work to your breakthrough work and somehow you fail to satisfy those expectations and then you live a horrible life that feels like an artistic decrescendo while as an experimentalist you are constantly pushing towards a greater and greater achievement so people do as you mentioned they see your entire body of work as valuable Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that it would sort of suck to be an experimentalist, I guess. Well, that's what I mean. Like, that's why I think, like, um, yeah, like, I don't think Damien Hirst will outlive, you know, Rembrandt, you know, and, and I think that's not just, I think that's a common, a common belief, you know, it's just like, for the same reason, Mozart is a, a classic, you know, Rembrandt's going to be a classic, you know, like, I, I don't know how many new classics we're going to have. Uh, yeah, Brian. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly say, you know, I, I really, I like the book. I, I think it's like a lot of really great books. It's really compelling and it's really interesting. It's it's somewhat provocative that there are these two types. You you, you know, you're either the conceptual type or you're the, either the experimental type. Um, and I think what's what's so interesting about this um, are the problems that happen with the um, with the relationships between that. Um, he the the author does a little bit about talking about the the space in between. But you know what I. What, what I found really interesting was that even in, in the extreme examples um, that David Gallinson gives for like the extreme, um, uh, maybe a, a experimentalist like um, like Jackson Pollock. So he, he lists Jackson Pollock as an extreme experimentalist who um, who did no planning whatsoever and just kind of, you know, let the you know, let, let the paint fall where it may. Um, even in those extreme cases, there is still a sense of the conceptual. So because so, so for example, like when he's going to like drip paint on a canvas, well, if you know that you're going to drip paint on the canvas, you already have some kind of a conception in mind of what the end product is gonna gonna be. And likewise with with the opposite. Um, you know, for people who are conceptualists, you know, they also experiment a little bit in the process. And I just find that really interesting in that, you know, like we probably all find ourselves in both of these archetypes, the experimentalist or the conceptualist, I certainly do. And I would, if I had to choose, I'd probably, in terms of artistic struggle, like find myself more in the experimental camp um, more more often. But um, I think we all probably deal with a little bit of both. It's always interesting to me when, when someone comes up with these theories that we can view artists through a certain lens, because like no artist has like, Put their foot down and said like i'm an experimentalist view me this way you know it's like it's a way of analyzing things but it really brings to mind two examples one he mentions is the beatles and another one i wanted to bring up is franz list and like the beatles early works i mean it's it's boy band music i mean absolutely like i want to hold your hand it's a cute pop tune but it's not it's far from revolutionary and people liked them because it was a group of cute boys singing nice little love songs 
And then obviously, you know, as they went on, they got a lot more experimental and in more ways than one. Uh, and they really innovated. And likewise, Franz Liszt was the, I mean, literally, I mean, hot, young, virtuoso pianist of his day. And his early works are these virtuoso piano works that are, I mean, they're fantastic works, but I mean, it's like, you know, uh, it's like a fast marimba piece by a composer I won't name. Uh, it's showy for the sake of being showy. And then when you look at Franz Liszt's later works, all of a sudden they uh, they have a lot more depth to them, his, his orchestral works. And yeah, it's not this like, uh, this highly virtuosic young man's music. Um, and actually I, I kind of just made a joke, but to be clear, that was, that was Casey's music I was talking about. And I've actually, I've mentioned to Casey before, like, it's been interesting seeing the way he evolved because like his old music was like white knuckle stroll. It's fantastic. It's fast. It's exciting. And then some of his new stuff is like so, so much like further out there in a, in a drastic way. So yeah, Casey, you're, I guess what I'm saying is you're past your boy band stage. Well, thanks, Ben. I've I've grown so much. It's hard. And to, to be clear, I think you would probably be somewhere between Justin Timberlake and Lance Bass in looks. Sorry, I'm distracted. Ksenia put up a band. What's that? Soundgarden? Nope, but close. Oh, the dog? Nope, close. They're older. Damn it, Casey! Come on. I don't know. I'll I'll I, I might not know. Um, Do you let's recognize see. this guy? That's yeah, Tom he's Hello, from right? your. For bloody Ray, shirt. Raging You're a poser. Yeah, this is audio slave. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> See, that was a quiz. Casey wears shirts of bands he cannot recognize. <laughs> audio slave is a little after Rage Against the Machine. It is. It's a bit after, yeah. Hey, um, well, you know, speaking of how these two things are joined, um, uh, the author, David Gallinson, has, a, has another example where he talks about, you know, Picasso being a conceptualist, but also, um, I'll, I'll just read it again, paraphrasing what he said, but less than a year after Cezanne's death, a young Picasso produced a revolutionary masterpiece that would transform the 20th century. After making 400 preparatory paintings and drawings, the largest body of preparatory work for a single picture, the 26-year-old Picasso painted the young ladies of Avignon, and that's the Cubist painting that I couldn't remember the title of before. Um, and has been used as like the cover of the Rite of Spring score uh, in the past. Uh, the shocking painting that announced the birth of Cubism, the most important painting of the modern era. So, so that right there, that is the very fitting procedure to his experimentalist description. You know, 400 preparatory paintings. That is exactly like tinkering and tinkering and tinkering. And he describes the same thing with Cezanne doing it for for his landscape. And of course, Cezanne took, you know, three decades to do it. And Pablo Picasso like had his idea solidified. He had it all conceptualized. And then he just had to practice 400 times to get it done. So they're different, but they're similar. Um, one other thing he adds, he says that Cezanne painted to learn. Quote, I seek in paint in painting. I seek in painting. Picasso painted to express himself. I don't seek, I find. Um, so I thought that was uh, that was cool. Yeah, Brian. So sorry to be, I mean, Debbie Downer. I have a Debbie Downer thought about this. As much as I find it, um, oh my, uh, very, I, I mean, I find the theory like really, really compelling and interesting. But like any, like as Ben was saying earlier, any, any sort of, analytical framework has its limits right um uh -huh. and so there's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of limits with this but one i think one particular thing that showed up in in the video and also in in the book is that you know what 
David Gallantin doesn't include in his analysis of like what makes great work and important work and then and then and then therefore using that to categorize whether someone is experimental or conceptual um, excludes the whole social practice um, the, the social practices of exclusion um, that are part of forming an artistic canon. So he's analyzing an artistic canon and there are and he's analyzing what is largely, European white men, and there aren't many women. There are no people of of, of color. Uh, so I, I think I, I'm not and not to criticize the framework. I think the framework is really interesting, but I think that's maybe where one one place where the the idea falls a little bit short is that he's he's just you know looking at auction records and museum um, exhibitions and textbooks and without factoring in the fact that some people were told. Um, you can't be a part of this because you're a woman or you can't be a part of this because you're black. And I, I think, you know, we just um, need to recognize that that's important. Yeah, it's it's certainly uh, incomplete. And, and I, I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, how, how how would some of these ideas parallel music? And of course, you don't have that auction metric. You know, you do have the history book metric because he, he also talked about you know, how influential something was, but how many times does it appear in a survey of, you know, art history textbooks or something. So you can certainly do that in music, but I, I think you would have a whole lot of other metrics that would appear in music, like how many times such and such symphony gets played, ticket sales in certain repertoire. You know, I mean, I mean, there's so many other metrics you could do. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool to think, um, yeah, I, from an economist standpoint, you know, these, these thoughts that I, you know, I don't, I've, I haven't heard musicians come up with very much. Well, I think let's, let's move away from this for now. And Brian, can you tell us a little about the, the Facebook Contemporary Percussionist page? Oh, yeah. So uh, that was a group that I started two and a half years ago because I had a question about a Coggle piece. Uh, and I thought, let me ask a question. Um, so anyone who has played the, the piece Ur um, knows that there, um, there, so there's six six movements by Mauricio Coggle, these six du duets for percussion. Um, so Ur is, is, the, is the name of the piece. It's seven R's in a row. Um, and uh, the, oh gosh, I forget which movement. One of the movement involves p pouring rice over Omglocken, while a recording of a Swiss calling the names of cows plays in the background. So uh, I think it's movement two, but uh, I don't actually remember. Maybe someone can look that up. So uh, I actually knew of different recordings um, that could be played in the background. And I didn't know if there was a sort of true or authentic one. Uh, so I thought, let me just ask Facebook and realize, oh, well, the orchestral percussion group isn't really like the best place to ask this and realized you know, there isn't a group that can answer this question. So I thought, well, why don't I start a group that's dedicated to contemporary percussion that may focus on things like Coggle pieces or Zanakis or, or, or whatever. Um, so I started the group with, um, with uh, like 50 group, 50 people uh, <laughs> to um, two and a half years ago. And now it's like at 3000 people. It looks like Ben, yeah. ben has uh, found the, the groups is, is the, Hans de Vanche. It's the second movement. Wow, cool. What what is it? Um, you know, I, of course, I've joined various Facebook groups, and I, I don't know. As the administrator, like, are there ever any issues? I know there have been other issues. I find I found myself 
sticking my foot in my mouth so many times in groups and getting into trouble and stuff. And the poor administrator has to step in and be like, okay, Casey, shut up. Okay, so-and-so, shut up. Like, do you ever have to deal with that? Uh, yeah, I have sleepless nights sometimes. No. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, so, I mean, early, early days, um, like, when I there were, like, 50 people in the group, um, I... Uh, seated the group and then like was was like away in a rehearsal then came back three hours later and someone had posted literally like a hundred different posts of um maracas they were trying to sell and a po- different a different post for each set of maracas and i was like oh no we can't have this so exactly. kind of lo- you know lock down the group um you know as it's as it's grown and as i've you know talked with other friends um I've we've I have some friends who help me you know moderate and administer the group together and we've really tried to form it into a discussion space um unlike you know maybe some other um groups like I have I have shared videos in the marimba player Facebook group and said hey check this out um and that's that's cool that's great uh but we thought it might be nice to have a place where it's just kind of discussion oriented so um, there's some some rules in place, and all the all the all the posts get vetted first, uh, so that we can help hope to avoid you know someone posting you know a hundred posts by like by my maracas. Um, so yeah, right. there's some stress, yeah. and um, the 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 goal is, the goal is really to have a discussion a discussion space that's that's meant for person to person conversation. Yep, yep. Well, it's it's interesting. Anytime you try to curate something, you try to give something to everyone. You, um, it's that saying, "No good deed goes unpunished." And I know I've, I've bumped into it with just this podcast. It's like, hey, we make no money, we do nothing. It's totally huge volunteer. Then, like, someone will have a beef with, like, oh, why, why did you pick this guest? Why not that guest? It's like, dude, we we don't. It's not like there's a competition to see who our guests will be. Like we we don't. Sorry, we don't put that much thought into it. No offense, Brian, but we you know we want to feature a lot of people on it on the show. But yeah, I've like totally gotten backlash over like certain things on the podcast. You know, you try so, your best. You try your best, and then you, I guess the thing is, okay, you hope that the thing you're providing outweighs the, you know seldom complaint or whatever were people upset that we had steve schick on twice was that it no i think someone was mad like we had we had um you, you know we had some you know yeah someone like steve schick on and I, I got some comment to that or, or message that was like you know hey how about giving someone without a reputation a chance for once like what for once we've we've had such a variety and like i've said from the beginning um this is um you know one of the goals is to take snapshots of people at different stages in their career so you know we, we've had a lot of young people on who are still students and maybe they just got some recognition for a little competition or something and so we we have a, a, some commonality to discuss with them um, so, man, Brian, congratulations. You survived the chat. This was like a bad chat today. You really, <laughs> and we have these stupid background pictures. This was a tough one. Re- you, you, you did like jumping jacks and gymnastics <laughs> through, my, through a mind. Yeah. It was, it was, it was piece of cake. Although I hey, mean I, ben, ben, Ben's background though, I mean, that's like, I don't know. It's, 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 I don't know. That's hard. That's hard yeah. to handle. It's getting We're all adorable. 
too look hot, how, too hot. <laughs> look how young, much. look how young we are. Look, Pius is nineteen. He's already lost, has no hair. <laughs> hey, well, one other thing I wanted to mention before we wrap today, um, the the great twentieth century pianist Leon Fleischer passed away on August seventh. August 2nd. So, yep, he was born 1928 and we just lost him a week ago. So, um, yep, one of the great, great pianists. And I was very, very lucky to see him perform. And if you don't know, Leon Fleischer had something called focal dystonia in, I believe, his left hand. So one day when I think he was like 36, is the right hand? Oh, thanks. Right hand. It just, his fingers just curled up. And, and and this is something that often gets misdiagnosed for something physical like carpal tunnel or some 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 physical uh, um, uh, trouble, but it's 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 totally mental and it does happen to musicians. It happens to people who who overuse their um, yeah their uh, their fingers and their hands, and it can happen to other body parts as well. But I was really lucky. I got I remember it very clearly. He played the Beethoven Emperor Concerto, and he just did the best he could with one hand and about two fingers. And every once in a while, he would open up his hand with the left hand and slam down and hit a chord, and then continue to play. And his right hand would curl up again, and then he would take his hand again and open his fingers up, and and play. And I guess this sent him, uh, before he decided to start playing again, it sent him into a huge depression. Um, he contemplated suicide, but then he realized, okay, I'm, I'm going to start doing some things outside of um, outside of just playing, do more teaching, do conducting, and things like that. And then I'm going to try to have a, a one-handed career, which he continued to have. And yeah, I mean, it was still just like amazing, amazing playing and musicianship, and I'll never forget it. And I feel so lucky that I got to see him play with, his his hand um and and not with both hands i feel like that's a a, a unique experience uh go ben i think yeah i was gonna say and uh it's i think it's a great testament to the to the human musical spirit so to speak that i mean he very very young i read his obituary very extremely young he was just one of those you know prodigy pianists um and he was actually he studied with some teacher who i can't remember the name but the teacher said i don't teach children but he taught leon fleischer uh, and there was some agreement that Leon Fleischer would stop performing uh, at such a young age. And I think that there was even that was allowed because he was so good. Um, but yeah, and there was uh, there were there are several left hand piano works like the Ravel left hand concerto is a very famous one. Um, and so Leon Fleischer took that into his repertoire. But I just wanted to share two things. One, uh, when I was a student at Miami and Carly was a student at Miami, Leon Fleischer actually came and conducted the orchestra. Uh, and he, like, you know, for such an established musician, uh, musicians can often have a reputation for being difficult to work with, if you will. Uh, and he was, I, I wasn't in the orchestra, I just watched the concert, but he was such a wonderful, delightful person to be around. Um, and then I, I was looking this up on Facebook really quickly. Um, I have a friend that went to Peabody where he taught and uh, he posted a nice little tribute. Sorry, it's taking me a second. Uh, this is from percussionist Matthew Overbay. He said, 
My first year at Peabody, I remember thinking how weird it was that seemingly nobody made eye contact or said hi in the halls. Maybe they had places to be or were stressed about something all the time. That September, I realized that the older gentleman that always acknowledged me by the arcade elevator was the legend Leon Fleischer. All of us at, uh, excuse me, all of us Peabody students are honored to have heard you play, speak, and espouse warmth as a virtue for life and music. And our teacher, Svet, also took a lesson with him, I know, on the Boxer Cone and just spoke so highly of him. So what a what a wonderful person and human being. It's just, it's really beautiful, you know, and I'll, I'll add just a tiny thing onto that because that was a wonderful way to end it, Ben. Um, but... You know, it just makes me think of, he has such a strength of spirit. Of course, I don't know him personally. I didn't know him, but I did um, get to hear him play a Mozart concerto. It was only 2019. It wasn't that long ago with the Palm Beach Symphony um, on a concert that I was playing. And it just like the wisdom in the in in the performance, like it just felt like, oh, like this is exactly how it should be. And how remarkable for, for any performer to still be actively performing at the age that he was, um, and especially with all the struggles of the focal dystonia and everything, so. Yeah, I just wanted to say something in terms of actually having just read Gallinson's uh, book. Um, it changed the way I thought about some things, and for, for Leon in particular, uh, I think for, for musicians, I think what's so interesting about Leon's ideas of conceptual versus experimental is that many musicians are really great at both. And so I think Leon's career shows that, you know, for someone who is a you know, prodigy, who for, you know, as Gallinson sets it up, um, the, the conceptualists tend to achieve very early. Uh, and so he, you know, in that sense, you know, a conceptualist, but had this tremendous career and all the way up to the end uh, was refining and refining and refining and be, be, being a wonderful and brilliant musician, um, which is characteristic of an experimentalist. So I think that's something special about music in particular, and not all musicians, but uh, but but Leon Fleischer in particular, that he was able to be a, sort of a stellar example of both of those types. Can anybody imagine five pianists together on a podcast like saying anything about any percussionist ever like like other than no. you <laughs> i can't they probably I, analyze your pieces casey oh i i don't know i doubt it pianists I'm, I'm probably not hey well this was fun brian thanks so much it's good to see you buddy it sucks that covid's going on and that i don't get to see you this summer but i'm sure you know this is this will wrap up by next summer i, I sure hope 2021 yeah man yeah hey well great and yeah thanks everybody thanks ben thanks carly thanks ksenia and uh yeah brian smith everybody we'll catch you on whatever's next 240 something like eight or nine or, or something so okay everybody take care